Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show. I am your host, Chase Jarvis, and you are here on this show on Creative Live. This is where I sit down with the world's top creatives, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders with the twofold goal. Twofold? Yeah, twofold goal. Onefold is to have a very good time uh, with you and with the guest and myself. And goal two is to unpack actionable and valuable insights with the end mission of helping you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. I always have amazing guests, and today is no exception. And this guest sits at the intersection of so many things that I find interesting. Writing, photography, the future, technology. His name, I'm going to cut to the chase here, his name is Kevin Kelly. I love Kevin. Kevin's like the smartest man in the universe. He probably know this little magazine called Wired Magazine. Yeah, co-founded it. Um, He's a futurist. He's a technologist. And one of the ways that Kevin hit my radar a long time ago, he, he created one of the most seminal pieces of writing, I feel like, that describes the modern era of the internet with respect to how individuals engage audiences. That blog post was called 1,000 True Fans. Changed my life, changed my career, and, you know, frankly speaking, the life of so many other big thinkers that I know, you know, it's a constantly reference this this blog post a thousand true fans the basis is really that if you can have a relationship as you know your online self if you can have a relationship with a thousand fans who love what you do you can make a living and a life on the internet again totally changed my view of what was possible and I, I credit that blog post and in turn Kevin for helping me uh, think about what it is that I want to do for a living and build sort of a, a, a community, if you will, online. Um, he's written for all kinds of other stuff too, like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the blah, 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 <laughs> Economist, Time, Harper's JQ. I'm just reminiscing so many of the, the articles that we talked about on and off the mic or when the mic was rolling for this show. Um, he's also written a couple books, uh, two in particular that I'm most familiar with, one called Out of Control. Uh, which focuses on emerging technology. And then most recently, we spend a fair bit of time talking about his book, The Inevitable. This is a book about AI and the future of the human race. Uh, In our chat, we also go into VR, AR, augmented reality, and talk about how sort of new technologies that are going to further extract the genius from humanity and put it out there for more people to tap into. Um, We talk about work habits and one of my favorite topics that we, we I'd say we kind of go into it um, at, at some depth that most people don't know, he is a photographer too. And he's actually built entire photo books from, from the ground up, as in like take the, took the photos, wrote the words, designed it. And I know he's working on another one right now. I have seen the copies. Awesome. So without further ado, I want to talk to you. I want to, oops, I want to talk to Kevin with you listening. But before we do, a message from our sponsor. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best 
of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits, and today Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Life classes that are on air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, Thank you really so much. I know you're a busy guy. You got a new book coming out in I June, do. which we'll get to. We're here in Austin at South by Southwest. What's your what's what's occupying your brain right now? I um, mean, like like today, okay. but also like today. What's your focus uh, for the past two months, uh-huh. I've done a deep dive into VR, immersing myself into the immersive media, and I've tried every single VR that you could do. Wow, including Magic Leap, including Void, including Meta, including all these ones that are not so public right now. Wow, but I've been trying them all to figure out whether this time it was real. Because I'd been wrong about VR before. In what way were you wrong? In 1989, Jaron Lanier took me to his little office in Redwood City and I tried VR and it was like, oh my gosh, this is real. This I, is the this future. Is, yeah. This is gonna happen in 1989. <laughs> and here we are. Here we are. So I, was wrong. I thought it was imminent. I thought it was, sure. gonna, I thought it was, it was so good that I thought was real. The problem was is that it was just too expensive, way too expensive. And the real change is actually phones. Yeah, that's crazy. The screens of phones, the little accelerometers and the tracking devices in phones and the processing power in phones became so cheap that they took that same technology and put them into VR. And now you could do VR for $1,000 or less. And that's been the big change. Huge. And last year it was, basically quiet on VR, and this year that's all anyone's talking about. Right, Everyone's right. walking around with these things. Exactly. Scoble can't stop talking about it. My right. God, so it really is, is like, something, and I think yeah. what it's moving us from is uh, internet of information, mm-hmm. and sites like yours deliver the information, and we have Wikipedia, which is the information, and anybody in the world has access to all the information in the world, which is amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. There's never a dinner table discussion that doesn't actually end in the answer is. Right, and we don't really appreciate how incredible transformative having all the information accessible is, but VR is changing that, so we're gonna go from an internet of information to the internet of experiences. And wow. experiences is a whole nother thing. For sure that's So that's gonna be the new currency, the new unit, the thing is we're gonna share, develop, trade, buy, invent, create experiences. How good, how fast? Maximum, I believe, is that we tend to overestimate <laughs> the effects of technology in the short term and underestimate the effects in the long term. So I think there's a little bit of a, there's going to be a little bit of a trough of disillusionment sure. right now 
because I think there's going to be a few places where this is going to be taken up like this year. Yeah. Games. Of course. Okay. But um, I would say three years, you should really expect to have those prices come down even further and you can at least try it and spend some money on it. But um, there's a couple of little places where right now it's going to start and gaming is obviously the, the, the main one. So. I think I read something you were talking about that it wasn't tracking on Moore's law, and then it's not really exponential. You still stand by that, or what? That was what AI. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's fair. That's AI. Yeah, yeah. And so AI is part of VR because a lot of the stuff needs AI to kind of figure things out. But AI is what was not exponential. Sure. Um, but VR is starting to happen pretty quick. And here's how I would say. Here's the kind of summary. The bottom line. The bottom line is that. Um, VR is now real enough to improve. It's good enough to improve at this point. Before it wasn't really there, there wasn't enough Cobble even to make it. it. Yeah, yeah. But now there's enough that so it's gonna to start to happen really fast. So it may not this year, but it's gonna improve uh, on an ongoing basis very quickly. Law of accelerating returns, I think, is that what it is? Exactly, like, it, it gets, increasing returns. Yeah, when, when they were working on the human genome and right. it took one year for the first 1% right. and they said they were gonna have it done in 15 years, yet they actually were right, on right. that timetable because the technology right, right. accelerated over that time period, right? Right, so actually even at South by I saw another demo that really blew me away. And is it was, Meta? Uh, I've seen Meta, but yeah. this was um, a capture, a, a technology that captures, like us right now. Sure, so they would have, three-dimensional They would have 12 cameras in here and they would be capturing this. And then when you put the goggles on, you would really think that you were right sitting right here and you were talking to me. You would have absolute convincing that that was really there. <laughs> so, but that's a lot of processing. The high end is going to be in making those kind of games and things isn't going to be something. But eventually, you'll be able to, with four friends, take your phones and four of you could set up and hold your phones and we would be able to capture something, mother, first steps of baby, whatever it is. That, that'll, that'll come. All right, so confession. Um, my career, my professional career, the whole time I've been an artist, started Creative Live in 2010, and, uh, and it's been a hell of a journey since then. However, my background is actually in philosophy, and one of the things that, that uh, I dropped out of a PhD in philosophy, right. and one of the things I was interested, I was primarily focused on the philosophy of art, judgments, um, creativity, but very intrigued by the philosophy of technology. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm intrigued, and I, it was that connection that originally pushed me to follow your work really, really mm -hmm. early on, um, and specifically Wired Magazine. But talk to me about the philosophy of technology. You have some, rather than thinking of yeah, like yeah. actual modalities or like what, talk, talk about first principles for a second. Yeah, yeah. Because the creative mind, I think if we're better at grasping right, principles right, right, right. and we can do more with them. So talk about. That's a good way, that's a good way to do it. So my, my last book, not the coming book called The Inevitable, which is about all these trends. VR. June 2016, we'll plug that thing. The last book was called uh, What Technology Wants, and it was the first theory of technology. Because biology was sort of just one thing after another until the theory of evolution came along and unified it. And technology these days is sort of the same thing. It's like, well, there's this, and then there's that, and then there's this. How are they all together, and I'm suggesting uh, a theory. And one of the things I would say, just to kind of bring you to the philosophy part, yep. is that um, I think that the origins of technology goes back to the Big Bang. It's not just about us humans creative. It's actually part of a very long self-organizing system that will work in the past, is working through us, and will go beyond us. But the important thing is what we get from technology 
is that we get increasing choices. Every new technology will create most of the problems for the future. <laughs> all the problems we have today are from technology in the past. Today we're creating technology that will make all the problems in the future. It's like, what do we get from that? Well, we get one thing, which is we get increasing numbers of choices and possibilities. And so, even though you may be working on something technological that, you, that may seem like, oh, this is consumer, people are just, I don't want, you know, they're just buying stuff that doesn't last very long, it's obsolete, it's maybe just getting people to click on ads, whatever it is, it's more important than that. When you are making something, you're actually participating in this very long trend that went back to the beginning of increasing the possibilities in the world. And imagine if you were Beethoven had been born a thousand years before anybody had invented the piano or, or the symphony. What a loss to us that would have been. Or if Van Gogh had been born before we invented oil paints. He, what a loss to him and to us that would have been. Sure. Or Hitchcock before we invented films. What if he would lived a thousand years before that? So we make these new technologies which enable their genius to be shared with us. So that means that today, somewhere out there, is a young person who is waiting for us to invent the technology that would let them shine. Their, their genius is waiting for this technology that we need to invent right now. And oh, so man. part of what we're trying to do by inventing all this stuff and making all these things is to fill out this possibility so that it could liberate and unleash the genius of anybody in the world. Do you know the work of Michael Mead? I he, don't. Oh, he's a, um, gosh, I don't know what Michael would call himself, but he, he's uh, the term genius. Right. That's you know part of the name of the series. You brought it up, and I think that at Creative Live we talk about creativity is embedded in every human being, right. and it's just our our decision, our deciding to work on this, to elevate it, to um, point a flashlight on it. And the same is true with genius. And Michael Mead talks about genius being when you're aligned with your true self, then all of this stuff can sort of flow to you. Um, and you know it's a huge thing for the people that are watching, for the uh, fans right, right. Of, of Creative Live. Is there's sort of a whole posse of people that consider themselves creative, and they're going on about their world, trying to make new things right, and, right, and right, right. invent these things that we're talking about here. And there's also the people who are sort of dormant, or they they need to go from zero to yeah, one. Right. What would you tell the people who need to go from zero to one, who want to start making, but or or, or maybe advance their making, mm. their creativity? How would you fit that into your philosophy and, and unlocking genius in any Right, way? right. So, so I think I, 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 there's a story that I really like, and I may have told it before, but I wrote, I read it in a great book called um, Art and Fear. Oh, yeah. Okay. And the story is basically about, um, the, I mean, this, this, Stephen Pressfield? Uh, there's the two of, authors. The fear of Art. Fear of Art, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so two, two books. This is a very, this, it's a very uh, difficult process to kind of find your way you, you know there's no there's no going A to B you go this way sideways back step detours that is the that is what you can expect that's all the successful people do and so it's a very difficult thing but the only way that I know to make all these trade-offs between making something that is um, understood now versus appreciated later that can sell now versus uh, appealing to you all these trade-offs we have to make the only way that I know that gets you through that even when you're beginning is basically to do lots of it to do it again and again and again, that 10,000 hours, whatever it is. And the story was with this art teacher, his ceramic studio art teacher, and he gave his students a choice of being graded in two ways. And one way he said, um, you can submit one thing to me that you work on all semester, 
and you, I'll grade you on that. Or he says, if you don't feel that confident in what you're doing, um, just make a bunch of stuff and I'll weigh it and I'll grade you on how many pounds you made. If you make 50 pounds, you get an A, whatever it is. Okay? And so, 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 so some, you know, that was an interesting thing and kids did it in different ways. But here, here's what the brilliance is. He said, inevitably, every year, the best piece always came out of the group that did lots. It wasn't the group trying to perfect it. It came out of the group who had chosen to do as many of them as possible. They always made the best piece. I think, yeah, doing something instead of nothing is like... But, but doing a lot yeah, of it is yeah, yeah. the key, is what I'm saying is, the only way you can figure out is to make, you know, make as many mistakes as possible, to just keep doing it, and, and that's the only way to get through all these little bottlenecks and stuff, is you have to keep doing it again and again and again and again and again and again and again, again, again. That 10,000 hours of deliberate yes. practice, not just practice, but with deliberation, meaning that you, deliberate practice is defined as you're actually trying to do something that can fail. Not just doing it again and again, but you're trying. So you're trying for 10,000 hours. Yeah, we have a, 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 call it a class, a series on Creative Live called 28 to Make. Yeah. You press that button, you get 28 prompts, one in your inbox every day. They say it takes 28 days to make or break a habit. Sure. And then people, again, submitted, not unlike what we're doing here with 30 Days of Genius, we had more than, I don't know, tens of thousands of hashtags. So we had 20-something thousand people from 100 countries doing this. This was just in February. Yeah. I mean, stunning, right. some of the things. And you can see transformations from day one to day 28 right, right, in a right, single right, person's right. work. Right. And it's just the act of literally... Doing it yeah, again and again and doing trying. It again. Trying. Yeah, the it's try. Not, it's not yeah. doing it for it, it's right. trying for it. Yeah, you're not going to close your eyes right, and scribble. Right, right. Um, all right, so... That was a little intellectually heavy to go straight to the <laughs> philosophical stuff. I'm happy to do it. It really fires me up. But I'm going to flip the script here just for yeah. a second and go. Um, it's this is um, it's not not heavy, but it's the thing that I said in the intro of the show. Mm -hmm. The thousand true fans post mm -hmm. was hugely influential to me. What year was that? Do you remember? Mm -hmm. like, yeah. 2003, three yeah. or four, something, something in there. Like that. I started writing uh, a blog. Um, a personal blog at chasedrevis.com yeah. slash blog and I started making videos. Uh, it wasn't even YouTube then. It was this thing called right. Google Video. Right. It was terrible. Right. But, and I remember the idea that it was, uh, I was a, I would call myself a successful right. photographer at the time. I didn't know where I could take it but I was already intimately aware of the relationship that I had or had to have with commercial clients. I was shooting big campaigns for Apple and Nike and when people started paying attention to what I was doing and writing and saying and sharing, and I was, I was cognizant of the following, I was not doing anything to build that following because the concept of building right. an audience, it didn't even exist right, right. until I read mm -hmm. your post. And it was like, wait a minute, this could or would equate to some freedom that, mm -hmm. I, you know, that I typically right, wouldn't right. Uh, wouldn't get. And now there's all kinds of, like, I also have a little fine art world that I've been working mm -hmm. in. And, and even then, rich patrons, they, you know, there are some sort of guidelines. And I, I, not that I'm looking for no guidelines, but freedom, mm -hmm. that is very valuable. Mm -hmm. What, give us a little background, what was in your mind when you saw this? Because you clearly projected, I mean, yeah. Kickstarter is something you projected right, exactly. 10, year, 10, yeah. 10 years before its time. So. What, what were some of the key sort of right. markers? And then we'll go into talking about how people can... So you've revised that a little bit since right. then, but... Right, so, so the, the basic idea of 10,000 true... Uh, excuse me, 1,000 true fans was the idea that with technology, again, I'm a big 
pro-technology. I, sure. I think technology does so many things. That with this new technology of having direct contact with your customers, that the calculus of how many customers you would need to support you shifted. So I did a, I did, I did a um, kind of a secondary to this, I did an examination of what it took to make a hit in all the different media. Got it, like at one time, like. Right, so I did, it's like. Here's a musical. I took the 40th. What's the 40th most popular uh, thing, whatever it is, on the radio, a song, a book, and how many copies or things did, it need, did you need to get to at 40? And it was shocking. Like books, you could get on a bestseller list selling 10,000 copies. Yeah. Okay? And so I began to think about, well, what would it take if you were not going through the publishers, because they're taking most of the money, but if you could have direct access to your customers, what's that number? And then I was just doing kind of a mathematical calculation. Well, if you could, if you could have true fans who would buy whatever you did, who would come wherever you were singing, who would purchase each version and edition of whatever it is you produce, whatever it is, mm -hmm. if you could have true fans and you could get, sell them $100 worth of content or creation a year, then you could maybe get by on 1,000 of them. That'd be 100 grand. 100 grand. You could probably do that. So even if that number wasn't correct, the order of magnitude was kind of there, yeah. saying that's not, like, that's not like a million, you don't need a million people. For sure, you don't need the You don't need to be platinum. Right? Yeah. You don't need to, to, to be out there. You, you can do something in a much more reasonable scale and so, obviously, that number changes if you have more than one person, et cetera, or if you want to have, um, if you want an intermediate. But the idea was, was that this new technology allowed us to be on a scale that we hadn't done before. Because a thousand true fans, you could kind of almost know all the names of those. I mean, you can almost yeah. kind of see that in your head. Yeah, and, and those of us that have uh, larger followings, I recognize right. people, and there are people going to me like, I'm... Sammy Smith. Yeah, like, right, right. Sammy, you've been following me for years. Yeah, exactly. Great right, to right. Meet you. Yeah. And that's just the true fans, because yeah. then there was the kind of the lesser fan that would still maybe get some of the things that you did a year. And so you could actually make something around that. But the but is that you have to directly interact with them. Yes. And there are artists who don't want to do that. They're busy. They just I want to make art, I don't want to deal with them. I'd rather have someone else do that. That's fine. I'm just saying. But if you were willing to do that, if you were to take that and enjoy that and are good at that, that is a path. And you don't have to reach for a million, you can reach for a thousand. And a thousand is, is something you can imagine doing a, you know, a one, a, you know, one by one by one over a number of years, you could see that. So that's the idea. I love that idea. Let me tell you the way it worked for me. Right. Is, and I think this is, um, it, it very closely ties to what we were just talking about, about the practice. Right. Like, I can envision what it means to have a hundred, a thousand exactly. true fans. Exactly. And so what did I do? I did the work. Right. And I started building and making right. and right. sharing. Right. I called it uh, create, share, and then, like, sustain by doing whatever uh, you could uh -huh. until the time where you'd have a right. thousand true right. fans. Right. And those thousand fans came so fast. Yeah. Because it was, I looked at how achievable it was, and right, definitely right, right. what I'd like to go to next is how to leverage technology for artists and creators. Right, but, right. like, it, it, it was reasonable. It wasn't like, right. oh my gosh, uh, do I need to be the next uh, Cartier Bresson or whatever right, 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 you know, right. whatever photographer or designer or entrepreneur that you aspire to be? I just needed to go to work, right. and 
in that work, I found great joy. I was uh, the, the amount of pressure that I put myself on. And this, I think this does go for people, even if you don't want or don't aspire necessarily to make all of your income or to make a life yeah. around this stuff. But just as a, as a cycle of feedback, it just made it within reach. And I, could, I found that in doing that, not only was I creating a potential net for myself, but I was creating community. Yeah. Because there's this relationship with the work right, that right, I was putting right. out in the world. So you said you're a technologist or you, you're a yeah, futurist yeah, yeah. and you like how technology, can you talk to me about what you think, what's the next thousand true fans or how should people be thinking about technology well, right. or is it the same same thing applies or has that evolved? Where, well, so at? when I wrote that piece, I, I was- <laughs> 12 years ago. I was, I, was, I was looking around <laughs> for actually, uh, for people who actually got funded that way and mm -hmm. this was before Kickstarter. There were. Kickstarter was not the first crowdfunded site. There were a couple sites that were experimenting with that. Mm -hmm. So obviously, um, that how having your fans finance and fund your work is brilliant. Yes. That is the technology. And by the way, you know um, there's lots of different platforms. There's almost 400 platforms worldwide. There's platforms that specialize in musicians or filmmakers. There's sure. ones who do, like Patreon, who do ongoing process. There's lots of them. They're very powerful and you should really, really consider them. And it's, um, it's a brilliant way to kind of make this work. So are there technologies beyond that? I think, um, I, I think there are some technologies that we haven't yet event invented that um, we will invent or need to invent. And that is, um, and VR may have some role in this, and that mm. is ways to collaborate, socially collaborate, to, to work with either other people or even with your, your yes. community, and to have true collaborative tools. So right now that, um, as we all know, it's often easier to make something when people are around together. I mean, that's just, that's just the- You have people to bounce stuff off it's of. It's a serendipitous yeah. thing. It's, yeah. it's like, you know, Wired, I would spend, I only go in for half a day, and I, would, and I made it very clear from the beginning is, is, is that I said, I, um, you can have meetings anytime you want, but I'm not coming in until 11. If so you, yeah, if you want me to attend if you want the meetings, meetings <laughs> make in the afternoon. And so I would go into Wired for only two reasons, into the office. To have meetings and to be interrupted. I said, if you want to do work, I'm going to be working at home. That's where I'm going to do stuff. But I'll come in for only for the social aspect of it. Just because you want to have the interruption. You want to have that serendipity. You want to overhear something that someone else is talking about that they didn't think to let you know, but that's how it goes. I think some of those tools allowing people around the world to actually collaborate and work together is going to be the next big thing for the creative community. That's very powerful. I mean, because there's... You know, we, we tend to you know, honor the lone genius, but believe me, most of the stuff yeah. of the world, this program yeah. is not just you. <laughs> no. Turn the camera oh, around. I'm, I'm, I'm as much a problem as I am a solution. <laughs> I promise. So, so it's really, really, I think this is a very powerful thing to, 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 to do that will, again, bump up, I think, the creativity, which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just very impressed by it's not just, I mean, you can't go onto YouTube and not be amazed at what is happening in the world of creativity. It's stunning. And, it's, and it's because of this really fast cycle where people yeah. make something, they put it up, they get responses, and, and, and they inspire somebody else. And the rate of creativity is just astounding because of this new technology. I think the next big level is 
really having really collaborative tools that work at a distance. That is powerful medicine. When, uh, gosh, so if collaboration is a huge key to the future, right, right. and you think technology is gonna enable that, right. what about these face-to-face, talk more about the face-to-face, like why you went into, and I love that the term you use, interruptions. Like, right, right, right. Because that tells me that someone else is having an idea that needs to get out. Yeah. Um, and you know, we can talk whether that's a stroke of genius and not genius with a capital G, right, right, maybe right. genius with a small G, but talk about that. Okay, so here we are, South by, this huge place, people from the creative industries and the digital world and the VR world are coming face to face into this one little city and bumping into each other. That, we, have, we know, will increase. And so this is back from my days when we f- made the first online communities called The Well in 1984. And one of the first things we discovered besides this amazing real communities, real virtual communities, was the fact that it increased everybody's desire to meet face to face. Like the Sammy thing I was given right. earlier, like, hey, I want to yeah. meet you. Good. So, yeah. so um, that's not going to go away. I think what we do is we just add other ways to meet in addition to face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And often that other ways will encourage us and compel us to also meet face-to-face as well. So I think both of those things don't take away. So I imagine... It's you know, additive. It's, it's additive. Yet. Technology is additive. It doesn't, you can still read books. You can still use books. Books... In some form, they may not be on paper, but the kind of narrative will, will, will still be there. But we'll have other ways, and that's the really beauty, is that we increase, we increase the choices. We increase the possibilities. So we'll have still face-to-face. Conferences will still be important, yeah. but we'll be able to collaborate with people in South Africa and someone else who has our same fascination with saltwater uh, jellyfish. And we're going to, yeah. you know, we're going to work. There's a community together. for everything. Exactly, yeah. and we're going to work together on something that we couldn't do before. Um, you talked about sort of maybe two modalities: one of going into work and being social, right? <coughs> Excuse me, and then the the opposite of that, staying home, right? Um, which let's get out of the theoretical for a second and get into a little bit of you personally. Yeah, yeah. So, you protected your time in the morning. I, I do the same. I have a, a all, militant might be a little bit of a strong word, but I'm very protective of certain pieces of my day and certain mm-hmm. elements of my time. I would like to know that about you. What if you didn't want to come into work before eleven? Were you is because you needed to sleep in? Is no, it, no, and you no, work no. so late? Is it because that was prime working? Do you did you have some regiment in the morning that prepared you for the rest of the day? Yeah. So it, it changes a lot for me because I have, you know three kids working wife and so we have patterns now they're a little bit older or they are older they're not in the house that changed secondly I was working at wired which was a very collaborative workspace so now I have an office adjoining my house I have two assistants um, and unfortunately my office is attached to my bedroom <laughs> I don't recommend that but that was I knew that beforehand, but it was the only way we could get it onto our property. Um, okay. And so um, I, uh, I have become pretty good at saying no. I think you have to become really good at saying no. And I learned a lot from my mentor, Stuart Brand, who uh, was really good at saying no. And he always said no in a way that was, made it seem like it was a favor to you. <laughs> I want to I want to get this before we go, but keep keep going. So right, you, right, you, right. you got good at saying no, right? I get good at saying no, and so um, uh, so I, I don't have a, a, a ritual for the day. Lots of days are very very different. I do still do a lot of travel in Asia, 
Um, so I may be gone for, for long periods of time. And then I have different kinds of, so, so I'm a very project-oriented person. I have projects that I'm working on. And those projects sort of dictate my day. Sure. So I've been mentioning I was been writing an article for two months for Wired. So that was, I was going out for interviews, doing travel. So that was a very different kind of time when I may be working on my next book, which is a photography book. And so um, that's, that's, a little, that's a little different. But the saying no part is, um, during that time, I have, I, I'm, I reply to every single legitimate email that comes to me, and my email has been public for 35 years. And so I respond wow. to each one, but I will very easily say no to things, and um, depending on the project and my time. And so it's like, no, this, for this time I have an auto reply saying, I'm on deadline, I can't do anything more. I'm, you know, in addition, I take I'm your thing seriously, yes. whatever it is. It's like a, a very gracious no, and it just, that goes out. And so, um, and then I'll work. But then I'll be another period, like when I'm promoting my book, which is like I'm saying yes to everything. Everything, yeah. Everything is yes. Sure. Why not? Okay. <laughs> sure. Stand on the street corner? Sure. <laughs> exactly. One, two, three. Okay. So, um, and so it, 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 it shifts. And so my day is really much more project oriented. Um, but there's, while I'm home, there's one thing that I do have a little ritual that is an indulgence, and that is I still get the paper edition of the New York Times, and sit there, you I sit smell there, the ink, and, and, uh, I, and I, why, you know, while I have breakfast, I look at that, and it's like, there's no reason why you know, I can get everything on the internet, and, but it was just sort of like this one thing in the morning, I don't know why, I just enjoy it. And did you carve your morning out just to read the paper? Or did you carve your morning out so that you could do other things that were the biggest things that you were working on at that no, time? No, I'm not, I'm not that deliberate in structuring. As I said, things uh, vary. I'm, I'm, I'm not a very good planner. You know, there's people who have their day up pretty much scheduled. I have never been that. That's not my personality. I'm much more, um, I don't know. Um, I have in my mind things that I need to do and I kind of get to them, but, but I'm easily um, bumped, Shady, yeah. Shady bumped with, with things. And, 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 and I, I, for me, like, you know, if there's a, uh, you know, there's an owl, there are barn owls nesting in, in the tree next to so, so, oh, they're, gonna have, they're having babies. I need to, you know, I need to see this, whatever it is. So I really try to be a little bit more available for those kinds of things that are happening. And I think those are, to me, as important as, you know, as long as I get the work done, um, is disrupting my day anyway. Incredible. Yeah. Let's talk about your book. Photography well, book? No, I want, I definitely <laughs> want, I actually don't want to disrespect your next book, so I'm dying to know about the photography book, given my background, obviously. Uh, but let's talk about The Inevitable. The Inevitable is being published by Viking Penguin, and it's about the next 20 or 30 years in technology, it's the large forces that have been running for 20 years already and are going to continue. And that's the inevitability. It's a soft Mo inevitability. Moore's Law and... It's uh, not Moore's like Law. It's, it's, I have 12 verbs, 12 forces that I think are going to be increasing. So one of them is cognifying, cognition, cognifying. The idea that we're going to put AI into everything. And AI is going to be a commodity that you buy and it will flow like electricity into anything. And then if you, here's the formula for the next 10,000 startups out there. Oh. Take something, 
add AI that you buy from Google or Amazon. You can now buy AI from Google for 60 cents a thousand impressions. So Google, all these big companies are going to sell their AI stuff, which will flow to you like electricity. So just as in the past, 100 years ago, people took things and electrified them, took a pump, made an electric pump, took a car, made an electric car. Now we're going to take things and make them smarter, make them cognition, and that is going to, that's going to be very, very powerful. Yeah, so it's not really about making, this is one of the philosophies of technology right, right. things that I was wrestling with right, quite right. some time ago, actually, is like, okay, if machines are getting smarter, and you look at just do the math, right. and okay, but if it's, it's the things that we're going to benefit from, not AI in right, and of itself. Right, exactly, like, right, right. Like, you, like, I think the best analogy that you just used is electricity, right? Like, right, right. Electricity powers all of the things that people right, are inventing. Right, right, right. It's, we don't need that many AI systems. Like, we right, don't need right, that right. many, we got AC and DC, and right, we right, got right. a couple of basic currents of electricity. Right. Is that how you think about right, it? Right, so, so all, a lot of the work that we want done in personalization is going to require kind of an AI back end. So let's say in your own business, you're, you're issuing, um, helpful instruction. Sure. What if it could be personalized in some ways that was very, really, truly personalized? That would require, in some ways, uh, a, a degree of kind of attention that maybe a human could, could give to right now, but that doesn't scale. But you could scale it with AI that you purchased. You're not going to generate it. Right. It's much too complicated. You're just going to purchase it. Don't engineers want to build everything? <laughs> right, right. You're going to just purchase it and put it into your back end. And so another way of thinking of it, you can actually flip it around and say, if AI is a commodity, then you take AI and add X. It's sort of like, it's gonna be, what do you add extra to the AI? Yeah, what's the X? What's the X? So that X becomes important. And then it's sort of like, but that is really um, how big. So that's a, an example of the inevitable that I'm talking about, that it's gonna, it's gonna get smarter and smarter, and think of it as artificial smartness rather than artificial intelligence, because people get really hung up on the intelligence and it's like weird and it's, you know, it's the Terminator and all this. Forget that. It's, it's industrial. It's boring. It's, it's just... Electricity. Right? Electricity. It's just, it's just art, synthetic learning, synthetic smartness that you can purchase and put into whatever you want. Deploy. Got it. Right. Give us one other example, if you can, of another one of your verbs, one of the 12 verbs. Yeah, so another one is tracking. Data. Data. Everything yeah. we do, quantified self, which I started with Tim Ferriss and others, uh, tracking, self-tracking, we're going to track each other, Gov corporations track us, the government track us. There's no way to stop the fact that in 50 years from now, 100 years from now, most of our lives will be tracked in some capacity or another. And the question is, is like, we can't stop that, but we can civilize it. We can make it symmetrical, we can make it comfortable, we can, we can in some ways redeem it but we can't stop it and, 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 or prohibit it. We can't go backwards. I'm a fan of Snowden, not because I think he's gonna stop the spying, but I think I, I wanna make it transparent, make it, and so that we benefit from it, so we get some benefit. He's been a powerful figure, obviously, in the last right, 10 right, years, right. five years. Um, one of my favorite, I've heard some talks with him, live talks, and one of my favorite things is like, would you, do you wish, it's not whether or not I'm a traitor, right. it's do you wish you didn't know what I told you? Yeah, yeah no, no, I that's, think he's a hero. I mean, yeah, I, he's, I, he's a hero for me. Same, but, but. Um, so, so that's the idea that, that we're gonna be tracking what can we do with it and how do we make sure that it stays civilized and, and virtuous. Um, but, but my point is that that's inevitable. There's gonna be more of it. 
And there are many. There are ten other inevitables that we have right. to get your book. So, like, like screening um, this idea that, and this is maybe pertinent to to what you're doing. I think there's a sh a movement in our culture, which we were people of the book. So our our Western society is built on books and writing and core texts like the Constitution, like the Bible, like laws. We had authors which came from oh, we gave them authority. So we were we were we were based around the book. And now we've become people of the screen. And so the screen has a different kind of a logic. It's, there's no authority in the screens. You don't have authorities. For every expert, there's an anti-expert on the internet. For every fact, there's an anti-fact. And so we actually have to assemble our own truth. We, we have to be much more involved and engage in that. Yes. And critical thinking, all this kind of stuff. We can't just get things from authorities. So books are unfinished. Wikipedia is kind of continuous. And so there's the fleeting movement on the screen, which is a very, very different kind of, of world. And the text had all kinds of things from the Gutenberg Revolution, like um, the table of contents, an index, uh, glossaries, abstracts, summaries, that we don't have yet for moving images. Tools for us to kind of unbundle things. The thing about authors and text is that we use found elements. It's called a dictionary. I don't make up any of the words. Right. I no take words. A private language, right? I take all the words that other people have made and I remix them. So remixing is the other verb. I remix those words into something that's new. We want to do that with the visual, but we can't because they don't unbundle right now. But with AI and some of the new things coming, we can actually extract out the different parts of, of, a, of a video thing, take out those parts, remix them, and we're beginning to see that with like supercuts and other kinds of genres where they are going through, taking a corpus of existing things and remaking them. But it's still very, very difficult. But we want to be able to like hyperlink from here into the moving frame of a hat inside a particular sequence of frames. We can't do that yet. Yet. But we will. And so as we kind of bring the Gutenberg revolution to the visual world, that is going to be the new media landscape. That's going to be the place where tremendous creativity, tremendous wealth, that's what the new media companies are going to be in, is in this shift into the visual component. I, I want to, I'm putting a pin in so many things in my mind right now yeah, that right, I want right. to hold on to. So inevitable, we should put a, a nice graphic of that on the screen yeah. right now uh, and encourage they can probably right, right. pre-buy it in the not yes, too distant future. Is it pre-order on Amazon right okay. now. Okay, uh, it comes out in June 2016. Uh, so there's the photography thing I want to talk about. Um, I'm also interested in, uh, well, let's actually, let's just go to the photography thing. Yeah, I'm trying photography. To, uh, so, so, so here's the thing. I write, I hate writing. I love having written, but I <laughs> hate writing. It's just painful. I'm a born editor, not a born writer, but I love photography. Uh, that's how I started out. I dropped out of college and I was a photographer in Asia. I, when I'm photog photographing, I'm happy when I'm editing, processing, I, I'm like, I could just waste, I mean, I'm in that flow state. I just, that to me is just what I love. That's breathing. That's, and so I did a book for Tashin. I did a book of photography for Tashin called Asia Grace. And it was my, my work in Asia, and I'm now doing another one wow. that's even bigger also and crazier. Also with Tashin? Well, the way I did it with Tashin, 
and this is, you know. Another uh, model for us here? Yeah, there's a model. So I did this photography over decades. I was working towards a book. I wanted to do a book, but I was a nobody as a, in the photographer world. And doing a photo book was this huge thing. You needed to kind of be a big person. <laughs> so I waited, I was waiting until the tools came. So it was Quark at that time. It was basically in design mm -hmm. and Photoshop. So I scanned, I had all, very early scanning all my slides. And then I designed the book myself, color processed them and designed the book, printed it out and I mailed it to Benedict Taschen cold. And the wow. book was ready to be printed. Wow. And I said, here's this book. Do you want to run it? And he looked at it, and, and two days later, he faxed back and said, absolutely, we'll just print it. So that's <laughs> what I'm going to do again, is I don't want to get permission. I'm just going to make the book and design it exactly how I want it, have everything done, it's camera ready, and say, do you want to print it? And if they say no, then I'll print it myself. I've done a couple of self-published books, huge graphic novel, another Cool Tools book. I printed it in um, China. It was sold very well on Amazon. So that's another thing we can talk about, self-publishing. It's, um, it's, it's real. It works. I, I, you can do it. But I think the tools are, the point is that the tools now allow you to have a lot more leverage and to go further along that process that I could not have done in the past. Sure. There's more freedom now than ever before. Right, the gatekeepers right. are the first time in right. the history of the world that as creatives we didn't require permission right. from the gallerist, the publisher, the editor to right, right. get our work out there. But there's a lot of work involved. and so that's <laughs> That is the barrier saying. I find that's actually right, 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 every right, bit yeah. as powerful as the gatekeeper. Right, right. So, you know, the, who, who's willing to do the work? Who's willing to do the work? So Cool Tools only took us about you know, uh, 12 years to make. <laughs> I worked on a graphic novel that was really great. We worked on it for 11 years. There you go. Okay. <laughs> if you're willing to sign up for it, exactly, right. everything you can, can do be it. yours. Right, right. Um, so the photo book that I'm working on is, is the first book was recording the disappearing traditions in Asia. And, you know, it might be classed as street photography in that sense. Um, and that's what this next book is. So I'm still going back to Asia into the places where there's still some remnant of a very um, um, timeless scenes and I'm capturing those before they're completely gone. Um, and Got so that's, so I have these little pockets that I'm going to, I'm headed back to China again, headed back to Kerala in April for the um, elephant temple processions. And you know, I'm so I'm kind of gathering the last bits and that's, that's what I do. That is, sounds like a beautiful project. I hope yeah. that you let me see it early. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about the philosophy of photography for a second. So again, I'll, I'll uh -huh. pretend uh, or assume that you don't know anything about my background, but uh, I helped popularize the phrase, the best camera is the one that's with you. I put it on oh, the absolutely. iPhone mat and the first book. So, so don't, so if you want to see my, yeah, if you want to see my cameras, I never, have never bought an SRLR. I have never, I mean, I've never bought the state of the art. I was, I was too poor to afford Nikon, so I had Nikon mats. Oh yeah, it's the okay. <laughs> I had Nikon mats. The first one was a Pentax and Nikon mats. Then I was shooting with, um, believe it or not, I was shooting with like um, Costco, well, Kodak film, Costco processed film. Then I had point and shoots for a while. I was actually shooting with little point and shoots. And now I use what they would call super zoom. I had Panix, uh, Lumix, um, Panasonic Lumixes. They're, camera. They're, I know, but they're way, I mean, they're cheap. Super, super cheap. Super cheap. So I've always gone with a super cheap thing. And so I, 
the same thing, the cam best cameras you have with you, I also parrot Lance Armstrong. Because Lance Armstrong would always say, it's not the bike. So true. And I would say it's not the camera. I've got a great video online of me shooting with a Lego camera. So yeah. if you're really looking to get right. some so entertainment, it's, 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 uh, there's humor behind it. Right, so I'm 100% I'm, I'm there that, um, you know, and then by the way, the other thing I would say is I would never in a thousand, you, you could not ever pay me to go back to film. Brutal. Never. Brutal. Never. T terrible for the environment. Slow. Awkward. I, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you all How the things. Because I had 500 rolls of film in my backpack. 500 rolls. No clothes. Just 500 rolls of film. And um, the, 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 down, the biggest downside was, you know, I would expose them. And I was gone for very long periods of time. And I would mail them back to my mom. So she'd put them in the freezer. So that when I eventually would come back, I'd earn some money to be able to process them. So that the, the delay in the, in the feedback loop of seeing what I was shooting would be months, months, yes. many months. That's terrible. It's terrible for learning. It's terrible for learning. Yeah. It's terrible for professional. And so I would even have to, every month, I would buy a roll of black and white film locally and send it through the camera to be sure that my cameras were still working properly. I did the same. I, 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 uh had always aspired to be a photographer without going into the, 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 right. the, the, the nitty-gritty details. Um, was trying to reconcile my personal identity around it. My grandfather died days before my college graduation. Uh, the silver lining there was I got his cameras and went and decided to walk the earth for six months with my then girlfriend, now wife, Kate, and taught myself how to become a photographer. The same, everything you just talked right, right, about right, right. walking through Asia, I had walking through Europe, spending all my money on film not knowing if the film that I was shooting was actually, so we would have to save up, like in, we would literally eat a can of beans for right. a day or two right, right. and save up enough money to then process, process the film. film. Right. And in Europe, processing film was super expensive. Exactly. And I was like, great, okay, it's, there's, still, there's something there <laughs> in the camera. And learning through taking a picture, writing down your exposure, right, right. exposure one, F8, right, 250. Right, 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 right. Click and then looking at exposure one when the film right. came back, X you know right. days, months, weeks later, yeah. and trying to learn like that it was such oh, it, so it really undermined the, the learning right. the learning curve. There's so. so many other reasons why uh, digital is better, and for me, what, what, uh, this is a very unobvious one that that has really made a huge difference, and that is is the fact that there's a silent shutter, at least on the ones <laughs> I use. I use ones that don't have the click. And because the kind of photography I do, which is a little bit invasive, I'm in, you know, I'm trying to capture kind of uh, all candid, nothing is lit or anything, control light, in, in settings where um, I'm so fast that they don't even know I'm taking pictures or they're not even obvious. And so that was a huge thing for me, was just having the silence of the... Um, Instead of the... An old Hasselblad, right, right, kerplunk. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the kind of stuff I'm doing. So, so that for me, it was another big benefit. So the, uh, um, when I started shooting an iPhone, uh, I, I was I shared this earlier before we started recording. It was vilified, like as a professional yeah. who's traveling all over the world shooting for the you know Fortune 100 brands, iPhone. And I was actually it was the Palm Trio where I started yeah, taking pictures. Right, right. In a sub one megapixel camera, and when the iPhone one came out, I started taking pictures with it, and I was like, "Like, what are you doing? This is so horrible for our industry. Anyone can become a photographer." And I said, "Well, wouldn't it be interesting if instead of you know sixty million photographers, if there were six billion photographers?" And 
you know, the idea of having a camera and, and what is the proliferation of the image. Right, let's right. just, let's not only think about our narrow myopic right, profession right, for right. a second, let's think about the, the future of the world. So how do you see photography impacting the future of the world? Clearly, I mean, my philosophy is very much visual, you know, a thousand pictures, a thousand yeah, words. Right, right, right. So what I love about a photograph is it's, it's a language that is universal, that it's almost instantaneously right, right, right. consumable. How do you think about these things? So I think where this is going to go is that, I'm not sure what the timeline is, but uh, I think it's in, in the short term, is, is that we'll have VR capture. We'll have not just stereo, but, but a, a VR capture. And, and that, again, feeds into this shift from the Internet of Information to the Internet of Experiences, yeah. where we are really um, putting people in, in that space that we were trying to capture, that moment, and it'll be much more visceral. And I think that that's um, going to be a, a part of what people are doing with their little devices, is not just that flat kind of glimpse, which will still happen, but also trying to, to in some way, capture something even more. And, and, and the weird thing about trying VR is that there's a shift from what I call from first person to you person. Mm -hmm. and when you do, like in a first-person shooter game, yeah, you're kind of shooting there. There is a sense in which you're kind of watching that. Sure, it's still over it's there. It's still it's over like a there. Bookshelf, yeah. But when you're in VR and doing it, this is not something you watch. This is something that you are there, and you remember it as something that happened to you rather than something you saw. And mm. so that sense of moving it back into the you is sort of what you gain in, in by the virtual reality. And I think if if we begin to have these, if if the same progress is where it's now just kind of flat, but it moves into a much more of a kind of a capture the whole thing, and we can and it moves ourselves into that. I think that can be very very powerful, and a lot of the same kind of thinking about framing and all those things that we have with photography will still be there. Plus others that we have to think about which we don't have. So in film we have the establishing shot and we have cuts and close-ups and we know what they mean, but they took actually years to develop. We don't even know what that is. Yeah, even the vernacular. The, all the, vernacular, yeah, the I, syntax, we I, don't I even see, have. I see so much, there's such a lack of context around this right, stuff right. right now. Like, oh great, I'm watching a 3D, and, and you know, at Creative Live we've done, you know, VR in right, the right, class, right. and you know, we, we have, you know, world famous photographers shooting, we put a VR right, camera right, right. in there, and the, the thing that's not useful if it's 10 feet away from its subject, and if you, okay, like, it, yeah, yeah. if you put yourself in that sort of seminar learning environment physically, would you constantly be looking around? <laughs> right. No, you look no, around right, once right. or twice and you realize that there's not that much interesting stuff going over there. Right, right. It's really right here. And right. so then, you know, in, at VR at a 10 foot distance, that's probably not that issue. No, you it's, see these the whole, applications the, VR, the, the whole thing in VR, where it really works, is within the arm's yep. reach. Yep. And it turns out that your arms, your hands, are 50% of the experience. So VR without any hand motion is like, you're, you're only, not even getting half of it. It has, oh, to be, wow. it has to be manipulable, it has to be within reach, you have to be able to move around, you have to interact. That's what really gives it. So I think um, that will be another kind of thing that we have to learn. It's not going to be just about... Um, yeah, it's it's interesting watching an old medium try and get applied exactly, to, right. to a new... I think, we're, well, I think we're back, you know, we're back in the dog top, you know, we're back in the early days of photography when nobody really knew anything. And that's how, I mean, it's going to take us some while to figure that out. For certain. So. I'm not sure of many things, but I am sure of the proliferation of images and imagery. Yes, absolutely. Um, you talked about screens. Is there a is there a negative? Again, I, the way I talked about it yes. was 
when people would say, oh man, so uh, film is dead. Well, film's not dead, it's just you have to be weird <laughs> to want to use it. Right, but right. it has its own place. It, maybe sure, it, it, sure, sure. It, in young students it creates a sense of moving more slowly and right. you know, more intentional compositionally. Absolutely. But it's like, do you really want to paint with oil paints now when you can paint with acrylics and it can dry? You, you can know, paint with tilt brush. Yeah, 95 cent faster. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you can paint VR. Yeah, right? yeah, you can just yeah. be, have, create a masterpiece before your eyes. Um, what's, I guess, with imagery, I know it's going to proliferate. Is, it, is there some negative? Well, I, I think I made a losing little... writing. Or... Yeah, no, exactly. So I made a little hint of it earlier, which is this moving from people of this book to people of the screen. And this is the sense that we're, we're losing ex experts in authority. And that is not an easy thing to lose because um, understanding what is true, it becomes more difficult. It is something that you have to actually work a lot harder at. And we have to have the skills. So I believe in this thing called techno-literacy, which is that there's a certain number of skills that we're not going to learn just by hanging out in technology. Just as you don't learn calculus by hanging out with math books or whatever. Right. You actually have to try and, and study and work at it. And driving a car, you have to actually train. So I think working with technology and learning some of these skills about critical thinking is not something that is going to be done just by being online. I think you actually have to train and be taught it. And how to assemble, extract out, understand how things work to it to get your your truths plural yes from this and so that's a that's a downside and then there, there's the ephemeral nature i mean a book is fixed and monumental it's done there's other stuff the screen is forever changing it's ephemeral there's life streams there's this time component that is very different and that's a challenge. That's 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 that's. There are negatives involved in that. There's that's one of the negatives that you saw, you talked about. We right. we're creating the problems of the future. Exactly today. right. And so I think there's going to be forty nine percent of the stuff that we're doing is terrible. It's harmful. It's bad. But fifty one percent is good. And it's that tiny delta, two percent, that we compound every year. That's what civilization is out of. So it's true. If you look around and you say. 49% of this stuff is terrible. You're right. Climate change, very real, very, very terrible. Very real. We've got to figure Climate it out. Climate change, endocrine disruptors. I mean, there's, there's lots of really bad stuff that we're doing. And I think the distraction that people talk about, it's real. You know, um, all these things are real. They're real things. I'm not sliding them. I'm just saying that when we stack them up, that there's actually 2% more good, whatever that number is, I don't sure. know. Sure. that um, will propel us forward. And that the, here's the second thing about that is, is that I believe that most of the solutions to those problems is more technology, not less. So I make the analogy, talking about the philosophy, is that technology is like uh, ideas, made real. So if I was to sit here and give you a really stupid idea, you're not gonna say, hmm, Kevin, you need to think less, less thought. Stop thinking. No, you'd say you need to come up with a better idea. So the, the, the response to a bad idea is a better idea. The response to bad technology is not less technology, but better technology. And so I'm very technocentric in the sense that I think when we have a problem, the solution is going to be more technology, which will make new problems. And the, and the response to those new problems is not less, 
it's more technology. So we're on this cycle. What we gain out of all that is more choices, more options, which is why everybody is living in cities, because that's what cities are. They're little possibility factories. They leave their beautiful villages in China with organic food and strong families and strong certainty, and they come to the city because there's more possibilities. And that's sort of where we're going. That is a beautiful thing. The, the, the story, the narrative is a very beautiful right. narrative. You said, uh, talked about technology and possibility. Uh, for me, the thing that, that you know, we believe at Creative Live is that creativity is a new literacy. So right. you can use words like innovation, technology. Right. Um, I like to think of it as creativity. And there's two, ty right. two, two types of creativity. Creativity with the small c, which is like art as a right, subset right. of creativity. So photography, design, music, right, right, right. all these things. Um, but that's really a subset of creativity. Creativity with the capital C yeah. is that all of these problems that you're talking right, about, right. even you know, mechanical engineering is creativity right, right. plus, or, or the wheel is right, mechanical right, right. engineering plus creativity. Right. Electrical engineering plus creativity right, is electricity. Right. Um, equals MC squared. Right, very, right. very theoretical science right. is is you know science plus creativity. Right, right, right. To, to, so, let's. I'd love to hear a, a few thoughts of yours on creativity as a discipline, as a practice. Sure, and the fact sure. that there's there's all kinds. I think it's Mark Runco from the University of Georgia saying um, that creativity begets creativity. So, the, like literally taking pictures with your iPhone can make you a better brain surgeon. Yeah, You're unlocking all these. You I, know, I, I believe that. So philosophize yeah, right, right, right. for me on that, if you Well, the, the one thing I say about the creative lifestyle, the creative you know, impulse, is that the 95% you know, of the results of creativity are, are failures. And, and so uh, Derek That's Sivers... That's a volume game. Right, yeah. Derek Sivers is you know, um, really inspirational to me in the sense of like, asking himself, um, how good was my failure today? You know, it's like, today, what, was, what did I try that didn't work? And, and did I try something that didn't work? And so um, that's, to me, that's a real inspiration to really strive for that, to, to, to every day try to do something that I could have failed at. Even if, and so, um, so I think that's part of the process, that, that, and that acceptance of small failures. So you want, you want to fail forward, you want to fail on an ongoing basis. You don't want to have big disasters, yes. which is what the Soviet Union and others did was by, by Eliminating all of their chips and having all this planned stuff and eliminating any anybody who could fail, they had this. They all fail at the end. It's the same thing with evolution. Evolution is such a powerful force, is because it's on a daily basis making mutations and other things. Where there's small failures, it's not. They're not log jammed into big failures. And so I think that sense, and that's one of the big differences, say in the U.S. and China right now, is that China is struggling with its culture. And part of it is, is that they, there are two things that they are struggling with. One is the intolerating failure. And the second one is questioning authority. And both of those things are kind of part of what's resident in the American culture that makes it so vibrant right now. Um, and, 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 um, but, but that's part of the lifestyle, is questioning assumptions and tolerating failure. I'm going to shift gears. Go yeah. there, just some short... Correct answers, which you're so yeah, good yeah. at. I've, I've, I've listened to a lot of uh, your talks. Right, right. Um, what are you afraid of right now? I think. I think. Um, is uh, AI? Are you talking about AI? Is that, yeah, is it, should so we AI, have some doomsday so, thing, or is so? It? So the, the, I think there's a legitimate um, concern about AI, and, it's, and, and I think there's going to be a disruption in our um, our patterns of work, and. Um, 
without a doubt, uh, it also is going to change our, our identity. So I think we're headed toward a permanent identity crisis as to what are humans, what are we good for, what makes us different, what, and what can we do, and what do we want to be. And um, uh, that, that's kind of a larger thing, but I think there's also going to be this, this, a disruption in, like, you know, the, the, the biggest occupation in America, the, the, the occupation that has the most people compared to other occupations is truck drivers. Yes. Wow. That is ripe for big change. Big change is auto-driven cars and highways and trucks. So I think, even though in the long term it's inevitable and it's going it's to 51 happen, it's a 51 percent. Yeah. I think there's a lot of the jobs that people are fighting over, are jobs that humans shouldn't be doing. And in a hundred years from now, we'll just marvel that we allowed humans to do that. A cashier, counting money. Yeah. That's not a job you should, nobody wants to do that job. That's a job for robots. So I say any job that you can specify, any job where productivity is important is a job for robots. Humans should be doing jobs that are measured in productivity. Humans should be doing jobs that we don't measure, that are wasteful, that are inefficient. That's what humans do. Creativity, as yes. we said, is inherently inefficient. That's what we do. Any job where efficiency is important, send it to the robots. It's one of the reasons that I say that creativity is the new literacy. Imagine right. if we put the same amount of effort and time, you know, in the post, immediately post Gutenberg right, world right. to make literacy because it, it changed the mortality rate, the, right. the, the birth rate, all, all these things, and it was an incredible boost. Right. What if we put that same sort of intensity and intention around right. creativity? Because that's the thing that will make you indispensable is the right. ability to ideate and to do these exactly. things that are incredibly inefficient, right, right. but very, very powerful and applied. Right, right. Very effective. Efficiency and effective are very different. And so I think that's where we're going to move to. The new work is, is, is work that is not, can't be measured in productivity because anything that can be will generally move to the bots and automations and AI and robots. And so we're left with things that are open-ended. And so another way of, of explaining it is like you can think of the world of Google and AI. They're working on these um, conversational agents where you ask in complete plain language about you know something and you get a perfect answer back. So answers become cheap and ubiquitous. They're free. Perfect answers. What becomes valuable? Questions. Great questions. Great questions. Asking, what's a great question? There's so many ways a question can be great. One of the most important ones is that it opens up new questions. But asking questions, that stance of questions, that is something that robots and AIs are not going to do for a very long time. That kind of, that stance of questioning the assumptions, of questioning the framework, of questioning what is known, of questioning how you do something, that's the creative act. That's what humans are going to be really good at. And if you want to be creative, that's what you want to do. Beautiful. How about uh, another short answer? What's that's something short. that uh, people don't know about you uh, that you think oh will be boy. interesting? Yeah. Um, there's a Wikipedia which has all kinds of incorrect information. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, I just am uh, eternally misquoted out there in the world, right, too. Right, so right, I don't exactly. There's things I didn't say and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Um, Things that they don't know about me, uh, about just nothing. Nothing. Well, you, um, uh, you love bananas. I mean, it's like no, yeah. There's nothing really important, but um, I, uh, I would say in general, 
I'm not a really high tech person. Like you know, I'm, your day to day movement. Well, like like I'm really not a very much of a mobile person. On phones, you know, the way to reach me is email, um, not even texting. Because I, uh, except when I'm traveling, I don't even have it on, and I don't have cell phone coverage at my house and stuff. And so, um, and and that's I'm not, amazing. The founder of Wired Magazine. I know, but, exactly but this right. is a, this is the best answer ever. And right, is, right. is that intentional, or do you find it like there's just too much to learn all the time? Well, I'm sort of neo Amish in that sense of like I'm very deliberate. Neo Amish, yes. I'm very deliberate and not afraid to not use something. I will try lots of things, very, but I'm very quick to abandon them and say uh, I'm going to just use this thing, and, and so I'm not embarrassed if I'm not using that. But I will try most things. Well, that you've tried all of the VR. Right. That's but am I, am I going to buy VR? No. Because it's too early. I think so. I can't, I can't imagine myself buying you know, $1,500 for an Oculus. What am I going to use it for? Um, so in that sense, I'm trying things, but the things I actually bring home and use on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm pretty, I'm pretty conservative. And, um, because I discovered this amazing thing, which is like... Um, each new thing you add to your life is, is kind of like, it's not just the purchase price, it's the maintenance, the upkeep, the upgrades. Yeah. It's, 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 like a, it's like having a pet or something. It'd be the difference between, as someone who owns a little bit of real estate, the difference between owning and renting. Yeah. It's not just right, right. the purchase price, it's all of the future maintenance and yeah. all of the headaches. Right, right, right. And so that's what you get each time. It's like, it's all that stuff and then how it interacts. It's, it's an ecosystem. It's like, is this going to be friendly with other stuff I have? And so, um, that's techno-literacy in a certain sense. I think you have to be very, very selective in um, what you kind of adopt and use. And I'd rather kind of keep that time for other stuff. Is there anyone that you think I should... We've got a couple slots yeah. left oh in this gosh. series. I mean, and anyone you... Um, this is not intended to put a lot of pressure on you, so yeah, if you want to punch, yeah. you can. But if... Like you have a sense now for who we're, you know, the, yeah. people, the kinds of things that we want to talk about and explore, and and there are people who are just literally making things every day, designers, and photographers that don't want to look up, and you're just putting out great work. We can learn from them. We can learn from someone at the opposite end of the spectrum, and everything in the middle. Yeah, I, I will have to. Yeah, you can get answer back that sure offline because I, I I do know them, but they're not coming to the front of mind. It's it's also right now. I get asked that question. Like, but, but, who do I want to throw under the bus? Which but but for me, I think for me, what I, my answer would be something that's um, I, I like the kind of fringes. So I'm thinking of a guy who makes pop up books. I know uh, Robert Sutsubuka. They're amazing. You open them up, and these things just you know. Trinosaur Rex comes out of it, and it's just all folded paper. It's just like amazingly engineered, and it's that kind of offbeat things that I sort of really enjoy. Or you know, some YouTube guy who's doing, um, you know, uh, some innovation in, in, in YouTube. That's the kind of stuff that I look for in terms of being inspired by creative. It's, it's at the edges. That will help. That will help me in continuing right, to right. curate the series. Magicians, uh, you know, the the. the that I find, I think going to the edges and looking at the edges, whatever, whatever business you're in, you, the disruptions and the outside, uh, the disruptions will come from outside of your business. It's like, okay, in the car business, disruptions aren't going to come from the GMs and the Fords, they're going to come from the Apples and the Teslas and the Googles, whoever thought. 
right? You know, the, in the hotel business, it's the Airbnbs. And so whatever business you're in, the things that are going to come over and really take over are going to come from outside of that. In photography, Absolutely. it's going to be something outside the Instagram, yes. whatever it is. Those are the things that you want to pay attention to. So I spend a lot of time trying to monitor the edges and look out beyond the obvious things. That is literally how I've made right. my career in photography, right. is looking at the storytelling, the, the meta layer of telling stories about making pictures right. and helping people inside the black box. Right. That, that's definitely outside. There's an irony that you're telling stories, but telling stories about right. the work as, and that right. was a very big vehicle that, you know, right. you put that with Taylor with audience and then influence and you, know, you can launch a campaign just sure, as sure. a photographer and get hired, right, right. you know, 10x over someone else who is every bit as good or even right. better, for sure. So if you were looking at stories, I would go look at fanfic. Fanfic. You know, fan fiction, where these people, the people who write Harry Potter, alternative universes and all this kind of stuff, is from the bottom up. That's very alternative. That's alt something. Yes. And so whatever it is that you're involved in, you know, I think it's really important that you go broader serendipitously, try something. Alvin Toffler, who was a futurist, um, had a great gimmick because he would go around the world giving these talks at conferences. And he said every time he would always go walk around the hotel to the other conference that was happening at the hotel and just attend. <laughs> it didn't matter what it was. It could have been like the hairdressers of America, it could have been the real, whatever it was, he would attend that other conference after he gave his talk or before. And he said it was never always paid off and just having him think about something or encounter something he didn't, wasn't on his horizon, that he, he understood, well, this is connected. What is a form of powerful medicine? Oh boy, reading. Favorite books? Reading two deep. or three? Favorite books, well, yeah, so I mean, that's or, one thing. Or, or books. Book, how about, not favorite, let's do this, let's do recommended, because yeah. favorite and recommended are often very different. So I'm reading a book right now that's very interesting called Super Forecasters. Um, generally predicting things are always wrong. People like me are always usually wrong. But it turns out that with training, you can actually become better at predicting. And so this guy has- Is it pattern recognition at the core of it or what is the- um, No, it's not that because it's actually unlearning. It's actually being able to forget to, yeah, like certain things and to question the assumptions. And um, finding patterns, we're kind of like, we overfit things. We tend to find patterns that we have preconceived notions of, and it's letting it's based go. on the boundaries of your knowledge, right? It's right? letting yeah. go of those preconceived things that's really the heart of it. Powerful medicine. Right. Got it. Any other books you'd recommend? Oh my gosh. I read a lot of science fiction when I was a teenager. It was very influential. And then... Like Dune and... Dune, yeah. Stranger in Strange Land, the Foundation series. You know, Asimov. Asimov. Classical, golden era. I didn't read very much in my 20s and 30s, partly because I was traveling and partly because I just lost interest and maybe the Hollywood movies took over. But recently I've been reading more science fiction and going back to it because there's a whole another generation, it seems, of really good stuff. And I read uh, like Ready, Ready Player One, which was fun, amazing, cool, uh, which is about VR world. Um, some recent Neil Stevenson, The Three-Body Problem, which is from a Chinese author, it's the first Chinese science fiction that's come back into English. He won the Hugo Award this year. 
um, amazing book, really far out, but you also, it's very Chinese at the same time. It's kind of hard to explain. Um, An individual outside of your line of work that we should know about. A human. Oh, boy. This, he's not outside my work, but, but I am such a fan of Stuart Brand. And if you don't know Stuart Brand, um, you should go read what he's been writing, what he's thinking about. He's a cultural innovator for 50 years. And almost every, at the, at the core of almost every thing in the last 50 years in America, he's been almost at the edges or the center of it, has had a role in it. And um, I've, he'll teach you, if you pay attention, about how to think different. And that's what I got from him, how to think different. Be a good name for our ad slogan, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for your time. It was time. my pleasure. It was uh, a great. Time. I could talk to you for the next ten years, and so could the. the I'm sure the folks could listen yeah. for forever. Um, best place to find you on the internet. I have a very simple email, kk kk.org, which has been public for thirty years, and that website is the same thing, kk.org. Sweet. Thank you so much, good sir. Great. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.